take a little break from Mark. We've been in Mark for the last six weeks. We finished up Mark chapter 1 last week, and after Easter we will start Mark chapter 2. Uh, but we're going to take this week and next week to talk about uh, the events leading up to the, uh, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this morning we will be in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 22. That's in the New Testament, third book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, then comes Luke. Luke chapter 22, we'll start in verse 1 of this morning. Lord willing, we will make it all the way through verse 20. We do have these beautiful uh, palm trees here for us this morning to uh, remind us of, of what took place leading up to uh, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, he went into town a week before uh, his death and resurrection was to occur. And uh, as Ernest pointed out for us, the people were laying down their coats. They were laying down their palm branches as the Son of God rode into town on a donkey. Now, this was uh, no doubt a triumphant entry, as our, as our Bibles say. The triumphant or triumphal entry uh, was a wonderful thing because Jesus was going into Jerusalem knowing what was about to take place. He was going into Jerusalem knowing that he was about to be uh, he was about to be beaten, he was about to be mocked, and he was about to be nailed to a cross. So as he was going into Jerusalem uh, and preparing for what was taking place, uh, that all took place uh, the week before his uh, death and resurrection, and that's what we celebrate today on Palm Sunday. We're not going to talk too much in detail about that today because I want us to look a little further on in that week as Jesus was preparing to give himself as a sacrifice for us for the forgiveness of sins. He was meeting with his apostles, with those 12 who had been with him for about three years, who had seen him do the miracles, who had heard him preach the word, who had heard him uh, tell the people the good news, and, and they were with him this whole time. And as he was getting ready to uh, give his life on the cross for you and I so that we may be forgiven, he had a final meal with his apostles. And this is an important event and an important thing that even today we as Christians, we still celebrate his death and resurrection by drinking the wine and by eating the bread just as Jesus and his disciples uh, did way back then before his death and resurrection occurred. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. In Luke chapter 22 verse 1, we will pray and then we will jump in. Father God, I pray that you just would help me uh, to preach your word in a way today that's going to bring glory to Jesus Christ, that's going to point us to him today, that's going to point us to the sacrifice that he made, that's going to that's going to reveal things in our life, God, that maybe shouldn't be there. I pray that you would help us to uh, reflect on our own lives and our own hearts and things that we are thinking about and things that we have going on today. And I pray, God, that your word would speak to us. I pray, God, that we would understand the significance of what's taking place in these verses today, the significance that's being uh, pointed to and what Jesus Christ will ultimately do and has done for us, dear Lord God. And I pray that you would hide me behind the cross. 
I pray that you would open my mouth to speak words that are going to bring glory to you, God, and I pray that you would help me to say just what I need to say. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Luke chapter 22, verse 1. The festival of unleavened bread, which is called Passover, was drawing near. The chief priest and the scribes were looking for a way to put him to death because they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas called Issachariot, who was numbered among the twelve. He went away and discussed with the chief priest and temple police how he could hand him over to them. They were glad and agreed to give him silver. So he accepted the offer and started looking for a good opportunity to betray him uh, to them when the crowd was not present. Now, I noticed something this week when I was reading through this text that I probably should have noticed before, but it's never uh, really jumped out to me. What we see taking place here is Jesus and his apostles are in Jerusalem, as many of the Jewish people would have been, for the festival of unleavened bread. Now, this was something that the Jewish people would do every year. Now, this was in remembrance to what God had done for their ancestors when he delivered them out of Egypt. Now, God's people, the Israelites, were in Egypt and they were oppressed and enslaved by the Egyptians for 400 years. After they, uh, after they were there for that length of time, God sent Moses back to them to deliver them. And God finally delivered them out of the land of Egypt. But before he did, one of the last things that took place is that God's people were to kill a lamb. They were to take the blood from that lamb. They were to put it on the doorpost and they were to eat unleavened bread. And they did just that. And when uh, the death angel passed by, all the firstborns were killed of every household except for those who were of God who had put the blood of the lamb over their doorpost. Now, this was something that the Israelites were supposed to celebrate every year. They were supposed to have a feast. Uh, it was called the Passover to remind them of the time that God had passed over them because they were covered by the blood of the Lamb. And so, even all of these hundreds of years later, God's people, the Israelites, the Jewish people, were still observing this feast. They were still observing this Passover. And Jesus and his apostles, being good Jewish people and followers of God, God's command were preparing for this feast, this Passover, this unleavened bread feast that was taking place. Now, this was to remind them of what had taken place in the past. But what had taken place in the past was to point God's people forward to what was going to take place in the future. Now, what was taking place in the future was the coming of the Messiah, that is, Jesus Christ. Now, what took place in Egypt in the time of the Passover was that a lamb was slain, and by being covered by the blood of the lamb, God would pass over those people. Now that is pointing us forward to Jesus. The, the connection there, the parallel there, is pretty easy for us to see as we read through Scripture. Now Jesus is the lamb who is slain for us. He gave his life for us on a cross. He was slain for us. His blood was spilled for us. And upon accepting him as our Lord and Savior, we are covered by his blood and therefore God passes over us. He, he washes our sins away and we are covered by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. 
And so this event that the apostles and Jesus were celebrating was pointing back to something that had occurred that was pointing forward to something that was about to occur. Now Jesus is going to use this event to shift the apostles' attention, to shift their focus, to change their understanding and their view to what was, to what is now, to what used to be that wasn't good enough, to what has come that is perfect, and that is Jesus himself and what he's about to do on the cross. Now, here we see that the apostles are getting ready for this festival. They're getting ready for this feast that is about to take place. But in verse 2, it says, The chief priest and the scribes were looking for a way to put him to death because they were afraid of the people. Now, that's what I noticed this week when I was reading. I always would think, well, why didn't the, people, why didn't the, the, the religious leaders, these people who wanted Jesus dead, why didn't they just arrest him any time? Well, we see here in Luke 22, why? Because they were afraid of the crowds. Now, we know from the last few weeks that Jesus had lots of crowds. From the first time that he began to cast out demons and began to heal people, remember it said that the crowds flocked to him, so much so that he had to go to a deserted place. We saw that a couple of weeks ago to escape the crowds. The apostles came to him and said, we were looking all over for you. Everybody's looking for you. And then last week we saw that even when Jesus was in the deserted places, that there were always crowds around him. And that's what the problem was, I believe, for these religious leaders that wanted Jesus dead. They were looking for an opportunity. They needed to find an opportunity when the crowds weren't there. Why? Because the crowds liked Jesus. Now, whether they all recognized him as Messiah or not, I don't know. But they all loved Jesus, and who wouldn't? He was healing people. He was driving out demons. The crowds were coming to him. Who would not want to be around somebody like that? Who would not like that person? Who would not be sad if all of a sudden somebody come and snatched him up and killed him? And so the religious leaders knew that they had to come up with a way that they could, that they could, that they could somehow arrest Jesus and then put him on a mock trial and present these things against him that weren't true. Uh, but, but that was their way. They were trying to get their way and they were trying to get rid of their problem. And their problem was Jesus. Even though Jesus had done nothing wrong, he was a problem to them because they were focused on living under the law of Moses. They were focused on being made righteous by their works in the law, and Jesus was telling them, you're not righteous in what you're doing. Your heart's not right. You are going through all the right motions on the outside, but your heart is not right. Acts Chapter 7, Stephen, who is one of the early uh, men who was speaking boldly for the, for the Lord and serving the Lord in the early church after Jesus had been resurrected, he is preaching a similar message to the people who are there, uh, who, who are listening to him. The same religious people, the same ones who were trying to be justified by the law and living under Moses. And he was preaching this message to them and he told them, he said, your hearts are uncircumcised. Now that would have cut to the quick for them. Circumcision was something that was commanded in the law that they were supposed to do, the Israelite people, the males, to show that they were separated, that they were different. There was something physically different that anyone could see, if it came down to it, I suppose, that these people were, were God's chosen people. Now, the religious people would have taken great pride in this, that they had been circumcised, that they had the physical marks to show that they were God's people. 
Now, they would have been proud of all of the physical things that they had done. They would have been proud of the way they dressed. They would have been proud of the scriptures they had memorized. They would have been proud of the, of the, of the way they were in the synagogues on a regular basis. They would have been proud of all of these things. And Stephen cuts them to the core by saying, your heart is uncircumcised. That is, you're doing everything right outwardly. When everybody looks at you, they can see that you are religious. But he says you're not of God because you don't have faith in God, because you haven't trusted in God. And he says you're no better than your ancestors, who for hundreds of years have rejected everybody that God has sent to them. You are the same. Well, I kind of got off on a tangent there on Stephen, but that's okay. That's good stuff. And so the people, the religious people of the day, they didn't like to hear this kind of teaching. And they didn't like to hear when Jesus talked to them either. Why? Because he would teach them in a similar manner. That is, he would correct the law for them and point out to them, hey, you're not doing right. How dare Jesus tell them they're not doing right? They are the religious people, they are the, the ones looked upon by the community as being the most religious in all of the community. And Jesus would tell them, no, you've missed it. You're not, you're not worshiping God. He says, he says, look, you look clean on the outside, but your heart is far from me. Even though you honor me with your lips, your hearts are far from me. Now, this was the type of thing that the religious leaders did not want to hear and did not want to accept. And so therefore, they were looking for an opportunity that they could arrest him and that they could put him to death. But that opportunity was hard to come by because Jesus was always surrounded by the crowds. So as they were preparing for this Passover week, uh, the chief priest and the scribes were looking for a way to put him to death because they were afraid of the people. So in verse 3, we see what happens. Then Satan entered Judas, called Issachariot, who was numbered among the twelve. He went away and discussed with the chief priests and temple police how he could hand him over to them. Now, this is amazing to me. I don't suppose it should be. But it's amazing to me that someone who had been with Jesus for all of these years, who had seen Jesus do all of these miracles, was not really a true follower of Jesus was not really uh, accepting Jesus and saying, look, this is the Messiah, I'm going to serve him, I'm going to do what he says, I'm going to listen to him. Instead, he was looking for a way to deceive him. Now, it says here that Satan had entered into Judas's heart. These temptations, these thoughts that were coming into his mind to betray Jesus had come from none other than the enemy. But this is really nothing new. There have been tons of people throughout Scripture up to this point who have seen God do mighty things and have chosen not to listen to Him. After all, we go back to Moses and those Israelites. How much did they see God do through Moses by turning uh, the water into blood and by doing all of these different plagues that took place and by parting the Red Sea? If anybody should have believed, believed God, they saw God back in those Old Testament miracles. I'm talking about that serious, like that real stuff going on. And they didn't believe and trust Jesus, or the Lord. They, they, they turned their back on the Lord. So I guess it shouldn't surprise me that there are some here even still in the New Testament, that is Jesus, uh, Judas, who is uh, getting ready to betray Jesus. And so the, the, the devil had put these things in the heart of Judas, and he went and searched out the chief priest, and he was talking with them, trying to figure out how he could betray him. Now, what was... What was Judas's motivation. Well, the only real motivation that I can see in the scripture is money. 
I don't really see any other motivation that Judas had other than money. It doesn't appear that he hated Jesus. Maybe he did, but it doesn't appear that he just wanted to get back at Jesus or wanted to show Jesus what was what. It seems that the only real motivation that Judas had for betraying Jesus was a few pieces of silver. Let's read a little further. Verse 5, they were glad and agreed to give him silver. So he accepted the offer and started looking for a good opportunity to betray him to them when the crowd was not present. That's why Judas had to betray Jesus. After all, when, the, when, when, when they come to arrest Jesus, Jesus says, didn't you see me every day preaching and doing the miracles, but now you're going to come at me to arrest me? But they had to have an opportunity when Jesus would not be surrounded by the crowds or else the crowds would go berserk. The crowds would, 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 would probably attack the religious leaders because here they are trying to arrest and kill Jesus who was doing all this work and healing all of them. And so they needed an opportunity when Jesus would not be around a crowd and they needed an inside man who could tell them where Jesus was going to be when that there was not going to be a crowd around. And therefore Judas is uh, persuaded and tempted by Satan and he, he gives in and he betrays his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And for what? For 30 pieces of silver. For a few pieces of silver, Judas betrays Jesus. And so he begins looking for that opportunity so that he can hand Jesus over to them. Now next week we will talk about as Jesus gets handed over to them, but before all of that took place, after all of, all of these arrangements had been made and Judas has already uh, been given over to Satan uh, to, to do what he's about to do, an important event takes place, an important event that even we as Christians today still celebrate. Let's read a little further in verse 7. Then the day of unleavened bread came when the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover meal for us so we can eat it. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked him. Listen, he said to them. When you've entered the city, a man carrying a water jug will meet you. Follow him into the house he enters. Tell the owner of the house. The teacher asks you, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished room upstairs. Make the preparations there. So they went and found it just as he told them, and they prepared the Passover. So here was Jesus and his disciples preparing to eat this Passover meal as they should have and as they were about to do. And the, the day of unleavened bread came when the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Now, don't forget, the lamb was sacrificed in, in Egypt as the, as the Israelites were getting ready to be delivered. And all of this is pointing us forward to Jesus being the lamb who is to be sacrificed for us. We need to remember what happened in Egypt so we understand what Jesus is saying as he's making this shift and as he's about to present and, 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 and tell his disciples what he is about to tell them in the coming verses. He sends them into town to get a room prepared. They do just as he said, and they are preparing to eat this meal for the Passover. In verse 14, when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffered. 
For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, this was not the first Passover meal that Jesus had eaten with his disciples, but he desired to eat this Passover meal with them. He desired to eat it with them because he knew what was about to take place. He knew that everything that had taken place up to this point was leading to its finale of his earthly mission and what was about to take place on the cross. He had fulfilled what God had told him to do. He had went around. He had spread the word. He had healed the sick. He had told people what they needed to know. He had brought the good news, and everything was falling into place, except there was one thing left, and that is he would have to give his life as a sacrifice for the redemption of many, and that is you and I. And so Jesus was looking forward to this Passover meal. He was looking forward to what was, taking, what was about to take place in this meal because he knew what was about to take place soon after. He knew what was about to take place soon after was going to change everything. And he wanted his apostles to be ready for that. He wanted them to know what was taking place. He wanted to point them forward, not backward. They had been eating the Passover meal. They had been eating the bread. And they had been drinking the fruit of the vine in remembrance of what had been done in the past. And Jesus is about to shift gears so that they will, from now on, eat the Passover, that is, eat the bread and drink the wine, and what was about to take place in the coming hours. He says in verse 17, Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves, for I tell you from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Now there we see the kingdom of God. We talked about the kingdom of God a few weeks ago. That is, the kingdom of God is something that is both present but is yet to come. That is already here but is not fully here. Now we see scriptures that talk about that people are entering into the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God is near and the kingdom of God is at hand. We see those things to let us know that in Jesus the kingdom of God has come, but the kingdom of God is coming in its fullness one day when Jesus Christ returns. And he uses that language here that the kingdom of God is still to come. That is, it has come in Jesus, but it hasn't come in, his full, in its fullness until Jesus will return. Verse 19, And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them, and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant established by my blood. It is shed for you. Now, Jesus gives them something beautiful to do. He says, from now on, when you eat the bread, when you drink of the, food, or the fruit of the vine, you do this in remembrance of me. Now, Jesus, when he gives his life on the cross, when he becomes our perfect sacrifice, when he becomes our Savior, a new covenant is established. And Jesus says it right here, I am making with you a new covenant. He's, he, he's trying to get them from the things of the past. He's trying to get them from the law. He's trying to get them out of being uh, made righteous by their works, which they can't be, and neither can you and I. And he's trying to point them forward to him. He's trying to put all the focus on him. He's going to take all the burden on him. He's going to take all of your sins on him, all of their sins on him, all of our worries, all of our burdens, all of our 
everything that we got, Jesus is about to take, and he's trying to put everything on him. He's trying to take the attention off of the old covenant, and he says, look, I am establishing a new covenant, and it is going to be by my blood and by my body. And that is how we are made righteous. That is how we are justified. We are justified through Jesus Christ and the blood that he shed and the body that was broken for us. And Jesus says, from this point forward, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. Why? Because the new covenant is the better covenant. The, the new covenant is the perfect covenant. And we see that spelled out to us in the book of Hebrews. I know I say Hebrews all the time, but it's important stuff. Because look, all throughout the New Testament, you'll see this theme taking place. And that is there's this struggle among the people who are tempted to be justified by their works, that is live under the law, and, 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 and follow Jesus Christ. There is this temptation there. There is this pulling there because under Jesus Christ, we are under grace. We are saved uh, by grace through what? Through faith. We are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. And the book of Galatians deals with that in great detail. That is people who are wanting to turn to the law, who are wanting to live under the law of Moses and not wanting to live under the grace of Jesus Christ. And the book of Hebrews talks about that in great detail. From the very get-go, the author of Hebrews is telling the people, look, you are being tempted to turn to something other than Jesus Christ. Now, there are plenty of things we can turn to other than Jesus Christ apart from the law. There may be other things we are tempted with, but whether we are tempted to turn from Jesus for the law or whether we are being tempted to turn from Jesus for something else, it doesn't matter because there's nothing else that we can turn to in that we will be forgiven of our sins, that we will be justified, that we will receive the grace and the mercy of the Lord apart from Jesus Christ. Now, Hebrews deals with this in great detail, and he spells it out to them in the book of Hebrews. Look, the old is passing away. In Hebrews chapter 7, I believe, verse 12, it says, when there's a change of the priesthood, there is a change of the law. That's what Jesus is trying to get the disciples to understand right here. I'm giving you a new covenant. I'm giving you a better covenant. I'm giving you a perfect covenant. I'm telling you, don't focus on and trust in the law, but trust in me. Listen to me. Follow my example. Follow my love, and then you will be made righteous. Then you will be justified in the eyes of God. When there's a change in the priesthood, there's a change in the law. And the law of Moses, which many of the people of Jesus' day were caught up in and wanting to live by, Aaron was the priest. That was the priesthood that was laid out for God's people in the law. But when Jesus Christ came, the book of Hebrews clearly tells us that he is our high priest who offered the sacrifice that was himself once and for all. And so upon Jesus Christ coming and a new priest coming, there is a new law, and it is the law of grace and forgiveness and mercy that comes through Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And the people in the book of Hebrews were struggling because they were still, they were saying, well, they, they, they seem like followers of Christ because the author keeps saying we, 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 
as if he's referring to them as Christians and he uh, establishes that he is one of them. We this and we that. And he keeps telling them, don't turn away. Don't get caught up in these elementary teachings, these things of the law that are holding you back, that are never going to help you uh, to be justified in God. He keeps telling them, don't turn to those things. Because once you reject Jesus, once you turn away from Jesus, what else is there? There is nothing else. And sadly, that was not a problem just in the book of Hebrews. That is a problem still today. Now, there are still many Jewish people in the world today who reject Jesus Christ, who have never trusted him. But even scarier than that, there are Christians in the world today who have begun uh, to convert to Judaism. They have begun to get involved in movements called, uh, one of them is the Hebrew Roots Movement. That is, Christians are beginning to go back and think they need to live by the law. They need to follow what the law says. They need to have the dietary uh, schedule and, and eating of what the law says. And they need to do this, that, and the other in the law. These are people who are professing to be Christians, and perhaps they are or not. I don't know their heart. But they are turning from Jesus and saying, well, I trust Jesus, but Jesus isn't enough. I must do these things. And that's a scary thing. Because these people, what they're saying is, I would rather follow Moses than I would rather follow Jesus. And guess what? That's exactly what happened in the New Testament. That was exactly the opposition that Jesus met. The people said, we would rather follow Moses than we would follow you. And even sometimes as Christians, maybe we don't realize it, but we may be involved with the same thing of being legalistic, that is, following the law. That is, doing this, that, and the other. Well, this is what the law said. And we, we may be even straddling the fence sometimes, but I don't want us to be those Christians who are straddling the fence and trying to find uh, justification and fullness in something else other than Christ. I want us to be those who look to Christ and Christ alone, to look to His sacrifice and what He did on the cross and know that that is enough. That what was in the past was never going to be enough. It isn't enough. And that's why Jesus had to come. If what was in the past was good enough, what Jesus did on the cross was pointless. And we serve a horrible God. But guess what? We serve a God who is not horrible. We serve a God who is love. We serve a God who, who, who loves us so much that He gave His only begotten Son and Jesus Christ died on the cross and it was not pointless. The point was this. It was for the forgiveness of of our sins. And Jesus says, I am making with you a new covenant, a better covenant. Hebrews chapter 8 says, And when the new covenant has come, the old is passing away and is obsolete. There is no justification in anyone else than Jesus Christ. You can work, 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 work all you want to. You can be as good as you want to. You can come to church as much as you want to. You can put as much money in the offering plate as you want to. You can do all these things. You can live by every letter of the law that the Old Testament commands you to. And apart from Jesus Christ, you will die and spend an eternity in hell. Because we cannot be justified by our sinful works. We are only justified by the perfect work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's it. There is nothing else. Everything needs to be centered on, focused on Jesus Christ. 
It's a personal relationship. It is Jesus with us. There is no more temple that we go to. There is no more bunch of laws that we follow. We follow Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ who is in us no matter where we are, whether we're in this building on Sunday or whether you're at your job on Monday. It is Jesus Christ and Christ alone who is with you everywhere you go. You are his and he is yours if you have made him your savior and put your faith and trust in him. He has made a new covenant by the shedding of his blood and he tells his apostles, don't miss it. Don't live in the past. Don't live in the law. Don't live in justification by works, but live in justification by faith. And that's the same thing that we need to hear. That's the same thing that we need to live by. We don't live by our works, hopefully. If you are, you shouldn't because there's no, there's, no, there's no justification or sanctification through your works, only through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And what is there if we reject Jesus Christ? There is nothing. Hebrews chapter 10. If you want to flip there, you can. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. Now, throughout the book of Hebrews, the author here has been making his case. He's been really pleading with these people not to turn to anything or anyone but Jesus Christ. And if they have been following Jesus, that they are not to turn from Jesus because what else is there apart from Jesus? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 for if we deliberately sin after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of the fire about to consume the adversaries. If anyone disregards Moses' law, he dies without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know the one who has said, Vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's a heavy verse. That's heavy right there. The author says, if we deliberately sin, if we deliberately reject the sacrifice that is Jesus, if we trample underfoot and completely disregard what Jesus has done for us and consider it profane, the shedding of his blood, there remains no sacrifice for our sins. Now that's heavy stuff right there. You see, the people here were wanting to reject Jesus and they were wanting to go back to the old sacrificial system. They were wanting to go back to the old way as if some way they could, in some way they could be justified by their works and what they had done. They were wanting to go back and sacrifice uh, to angels again. They were wanting to reject everything that they had heard about Jesus Christ, everything that they had believed about Jesus Christ. They were wanting to throw it all away and they were wanting to be justified by their works. And the author of Hebrews says, if you do that, if you deliberately sin, if you deliberately turn your back on Jesus Christ, if you deliberately give up your faith in Him and go back to some other method of being justified, there remains no forgiveness of sins. Because where else are you going to find forgiveness of sins apart from Jesus Christ? 
nowhere. There is going to be no forgiveness of sins apart from Jesus Christ. All that there is to look forward to apart from Jesus Christ is the judgment of the Lord. And oh, what a terrifying thing it is to fall into the hands of God. Now that's a heavy verse right there. That's a heavy verse. It's a, it's a strong thing that we need to look at and we need to pay attention to in our life. Am I sticking with Jesus or am I turning from Jesus? Am I rejecting Jesus? Do I have faith in Jesus or have I lost my faith in Jesus Christ? There are many people in this world that have heard the gospel who have tasted of the good news, who have become companions of the Holy Spirit, as Hebrews chapter 6 tells us and who have fallen away because they have rejected Jesus Christ. Now that's heavy stuff. That's heavy stuff. You say, well, what are we supposed to make of those verses? Those are difficult verses. Yes, they are. Those are two of the most difficult passages in Scripture that I've struggled with in all of my years of Scripture, Hebrews chapter 6 and Hebrews chapter 10. Now, I know a popular doctrine that is preached among churches today is once saved, always saved. And perhaps that doctrine is true. But what if it's not? What if when it says falling from grace and those who have become companions of the Holy Spirit actually means those who were in Christ Jesus and who have lost their faith in Christ Jesus? Now, I'm not telling you what to believe this morning. I encourage you to pray about that. I understand that once we become saved in Jesus Christ, that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. I know those verses. I know the promises that we have in God's Word, but I also know the verses like Hebrews chapter 6 and Hebrews chapter 10, and I can't choose one over the other. I have to read them both and let the Holy Spirit guide, and you have to do the same. We may be secure in our salvation once we're saved, or perhaps we can lose our faith in Jesus Christ. Now let me clarify, this is, a, this is a deep subject, and this is something that really makes us think. Now here's what I don't think. I don't think that we can sin too much to lose our salvation to God. I know any time that the conversation or the topic comes up, once saved, always saved, is it true, is it not true? The first thing that anybody, when anybody says, oh, I believe you can lose your salvation, the first thing that people say is, well, I just don't believe that you can sin too much to lose your salvation. Well, guess what? Neither do I. Because we're not saved by how good we are, and I don't believe we lose our salvation based on how bad we are. We are saved by faith and faith alone. If we are saved by faith and we lose our faith in Jesus Christ, then what else is there in our life? If we are saved by faith and we take our faith from Jesus Christ and we put it in someone or something else, how are we going to be saved by that faith? How are we going to be saved by faith in someone that we do not have faith in when we turn from the only one who can save us and turn to other means of salvation? We can't be. We are saved by Jesus Christ and salvation comes in Christ alone. I don't want us to get caught up in works. 
I don't want you to think for a second you can earn your salvation because you cannot earn your salvation based on your works and you cannot lose your salvation based on your sin. Your salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And I can assure you this, as long as you remain faithful to Jesus Christ, you are secure in Him. As long as you don't turn your eyes to the left or to the right, as long as you stay on the straight and narrow, as long as you repent of the sins in your life and keep your focus on the Lord and your faith is in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. The Bible is clear on that. And Jesus tells His disciples, I'm making with you a new covenant. And it's going to be by my body and by my blood. Now, I don't know anybody's heart in here. I wish and I hope everybody in here has accepted Jesus Christ. And I hope that you're all walking close to Him. But I don't know your heart. And maybe some of you are like the people that Jesus was talking to. Like the people that Stephen was talking to. Boy, you, you, you're really religious and you're really caught up in your religious ways. But you're not serving the Lord. Maybe you honor Him with your lips. Maybe you look the part, but your heart is far from Him. I want to tell you today, you're not going to find any peace, you're not going to find any joy, and you're not going to find any forgiveness of your sins if you're living that life. Because joy and peace and forgiveness of sins comes only through Jesus Christ. It comes only in the new covenant. It comes only in the perfect covenant. And that is Jesus Christ. If you've never accepted Him, if you're tempted to turn from Him, if you're tempted to turn to something else, don't give up. Stand firm, run the race with endurance, and do not give up. Because where are you going to run to? Hebrews tells us there's nowhere to run to apart from Jesus Christ. Because once we reject Him, there is no forgiveness of our sins. You're looking for forgiveness you come to Jesus Christ this morning. He died on the cross for you. He shed His blood for you so that you could be forgiven. And you can come to Him by your faith in Him and by your faith in Him alone. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning and we thank you for these words. And this is heavy stuff, dear Lord, as we talk about uh, these things this morning. And I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would help us to be in your word, to understand your word, to know what your word says, dear Lord, to take the, to take the happy with the tough, dear Lord, to take those verses that we wrestle with and wrestle with them, dear Lord God. God, I know that this is not a popular message this morning, dear Lord, but, but God, we must hear your word, and I pray that the Holy Spirit will help us to understand your word, to live by your word, and I pray, God, that if there are any in this room that have not turned to Jesus Christ, that today, that they would do so. God, maybe there are some in this, in this room, and they've just they've got caught up with things in the world, and, and they just hadn't been... They hadn't been trusting you. They hadn't been living for you. God, I pray that they know today that there is forgiveness, that Jesus is there, dear Lord, that God, maybe we've gone through a rough patch in our life and maybe there are some, God, that thought they knew you and realized today that they never did. And maybe there are some that turn from you, dear Lord, and they realize there's nowhere else they can go and they want to come back to you, dear Lord. And we thank you for the precious, precious blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins, that we can come to him time after time and we can be forgiven, dear Lord. God, I pray that you just help us to, to, to understand the power of the new covenant. God, I pray that you help us not to get caught up in the old, but dear Lord, to focus in the present 
That is Jesus Christ and what he did for us. And I pray that you help that to be on our mind and to be, and, and to be something that just uh, we focus on this week as we think about uh, the wonderful, wonderful gift that you gave us in your son Jesus Christ and the shedding of his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.